Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. And I'm Alicia. Welcome to another episode. This week, it is the Adelaide Film Festival in our hometown of Adelaide. A little old Adelaide, hence the name of the film festival. Yeah. <laughs> and that means that there's been a bunch of really amazing female film producers in town, directors and actresses. Yeah, because of course, as we know, film is one of those industries where women are rather underrepresented. But there was one particular film that kind of caught our eye in this festival. It's a subject that I think is really interesting and it's quite close to my heart. It is, isn't it? So the film is uh, Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story. And I got to sit down with the producer of the film, Rita Walsh, to chat about fangirls and boy bands and what it means to be a fangirl and how it can kind of change your life. This is important to you, isn't it? Look, I was a little bit of a boy band fangirl. You, a little bit? You were really a big boy band oh, person, yeah. were you not? Who who among us wasn't? wasn't Me. Yeah, you yeah. were too cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Way too cool. Not, not too, too cool. You know, I was into a bit of New Kids on the Block. Oh, but, yeah. But, you know, unlike yourself... I don't feel that I could name, uh, I could, well, there was Wahlbergs. There were definitely Wahlbergs. There were Wahlbergs. There was a Jordan. Uh, I think I liked him the best. You think? I think You're he was my favourite. You're supposed favorite. to know these things. I don't. I don't. And I couldn't tell you <laughs> their star signs or their birth dates or their favourite colour or their favourite animal, but I bet, Lauren, you could enlighten us about the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, well, I was going to say, the Backstreet Boys were my poison of choice. Of course, I did like a, a bunch poison of different of boy bands. Poison of choice. <laughs> I did like a bunch of boy bands. Backstreet Boys were number one, but I also loved, I mean, Hanson, which contentiously... Oh. They don't quite count as a boy band, but they're I think a that child band. Their fan base is very much the same, mm-hmm. though. There was also Five, and there was NSYNC. For a little while, there was like Blue. I don't know if anyone even knows I don't who, know who Blue that is. are. No. Anyway, but yeah, Nick Carter was the poster boy whose face adorned my preteen walls, and indeed, I can still tell you that. He is a Capricorn mm-hmm. and his favourite animal is a dolphin. Mm-hmm. But Do you know his favourite colour? Oh. Oh, I've stumped you. Yeah, you have stumped I've me on stumped that stumped you. I want to say maybe green, but that could be wrong. Let's just go with I it. I just made that green. up. Green. His favourite colour is green. I'm pretty sure he likes redheads. Everybody likes redheads. We're pretty good. <laughs> but the important thing to know is that this film follows four different women with four different obsessions. Yeah. So we have one woman who was there sort of at the birth of Beatlemania, mm. of the craze mm. of the Beatles. So the Beatles were the love of her life. We also have one woman who was obsessed with, as Lauren was, the Backstreet Boys. Boys. We also follow someone who was a devout Take That fan. (laughs) And then perhaps a more recent phenomenon in One Direction. And what I really love about this film and what I think makes it so special is the way that it it treats this love of boy bands as something that doesn't need to be mocked and derided in the way that so often the loves of young girls are. And that's what really interests Mm. me about this subject is the kind of 
absolute hyper, hyper love that young girls have for boy bands because you're at that stage in your life, your brain is growing and developing, you're experiencing emotions for the first time and they are hyper, hyper That is very huge. true. Look, and I can relate. Like, I'm not trying to devalue your boy band love. <laughs> like, I know I mock you, but I, I do it affectionately and I realise it's a real thing because I also was in love but not so much with boy bands. I... Do not tell a lie when I say quite sincerely and without exaggeration, there was a point in my life where I would have died for Christian Slater. Yeah. It's so I, I understand. Also, I probably would have died for Jason Priestley, Lou Diamond Phillips, and also Bruce Samerson. I really feel like this says something quite particular about your coming of age. <laughs> Like period in history, <laughs> quite different. Yeah, it's, it's a very sig- yeah. Mine was a few years later. Yeah, obviously. I also feel like Bruce Samerson is a very niche. I don't think anybody, as as no one who know, no one knows who Blue is. I don't think anyone knows who Bruce Samerson. I don't Bruce know Samerson. who that is. Anyway, <laughs> they were key. They were very important. And also, I think that's something that we do. So yeah, we do kind of devalue this idea about fandom. But mm. something I think that's really important that comes out of this as well is that kind of community that rises yes. up around bands and around a kind of a sisterhood, I mm. suppose, which can sometimes be mean, but can also be a really empowering and yeah. important and um, creative yeah. and like entrepreneurial even. Yes. And very formative as yeah. well. And it's, it helps young women, I think, to find a sense of identity and mm. place. And so it's something that this film explores in a really positive light. Yeah, and also what's wrong with just loving something and, like, reveling in that joy of just loving something? And I think, as Harry Styles himself says, you know, who's to say that the musical tastes of a 13-year-old girl are of any less value than those of a 30-year-old male hipster? So true. So very, very true. Because also 13-year-old girls are responsible for informing so much more of our culture than anyone would ever dare to suggest. That's right. And so this time Lauren took the reins on this interview. So I hope you will enjoy, I'm going to enjoy, (laughs) sitting down and listening to Lauren's interview with Rita Walsh. The producer of I Used To Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story, which is in selected cinemas as of November 22nd. I'm sitting down with Rita Walsh. Welcome to Deviant Women. Thank um, you very much for having me. It's so exciting to talk to you. And I, obviously, podcasts are in audio format, so people can't see that yeah. I'm wearing my vintage 1998 Backstreet Boy original. Stunning. Backstreet Boys it's stunning. <laughs> I mean, the colours, it's got a really good Instagram filter on it. It's really... It does. <laughs> it's got that kind of late 90s. Yes. There's something about it, like the colouring. So we are here Absolutely. to talk about fangirls of boy bands in particular and I'm really really excited to talk about this as a former boy band deep deep boy band lover yeah but also someone who's really fascinated by I guess the way that girls are Mm. seen to be these sort of hysterical creatures when it comes to things like boy bands and and what that phenomenon is and what it means so yeah welcome thank Um, you I'm so excited to talk to deviant women we like to think that the film is feminist, I think, but it's also grappling with something like the marketing constructs that are boy bands. Yeah. So there's something really fun to explore and dig into, I think. Yes, definitely. I agree. And I do actually think that the film is quite feminist because I think you actually, I think, mention yeah. maybe during the film, I can't remember if it was during the film or if it was something I was reading about, but mentioned that previous sorts of 
I guess, documentaries about fangirls can be really critical mm. and portray fangirls in a really kind of negative light and your film doesn't do this at all. Exactly. Fan films generally tend to find the crazy, mm. like uh, the people that are, you know, sad obsessives for want of a better word. There was a film, a Channel 4 doc in the UK about One Direction fans mm. that came out in the height of it and the fandom was so angry about it. You know, about how they were portrayed. They found them and really made them look bad. Yeah, insane. Yeah. yeah. And, and those, the One Direction fan are all powerful. Like, I think they basically, like, bought down the Channel 4 website afterwards. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the thing. Like, these group, like, yeah. as much as we kind of criticise the commodification of girls in this yeah. way, they are a powerful force. Oh, yeah. The um, One Direction fandom are amazing. They're, I mean... Now BTS are the same, but like the just the language that they developed online and the yeah. way they work together. Who says girls can't like work in tech like what they did? And, yeah. Know. Anyway, we we'll yeah. go down a whole rabbit hole there. Well, I, I do actually want to go down that rabbit hole eventually, but I think what we should probably yes. start with is is maybe just explaining a little bit about the film. So the film follows four women yep. in four, I guess, different kind of boy band generations. We've got Susan, who loves the Beatles, mm-hmm. Dara, who loves Take That, yep. Sadia, who loves the Backstreet Boys, who is my, you know, obsession as well, um, and Elif. Alif, Alif. Yeah. Uh-huh. They've all got unusual names except Susan. Um, Alif's Turkish Muslim American. Um, Sadia is American, but her parents are Pakistani yep. immigrants. And uh, Dara is very Irish Australian. Yes. <laughs> and then, so can you tell us a little bit about why you chose this generational view of looking at women who love boy bands? It started out because Jessica Lesky, the director, at the age of 31, fell in love with one Direction. Yeah. And um, so to start off with, we we were looking at a One Direction. And then we just wanted to zoom out a bit, actually. And we found, just kept finding these amazing stories of yeah. fans across the years. And we wanted to see what had changed and what hadn't. Because there is, there's a bit of ageism in the way fangirls mm. are treated. Mm. And it's, you know, I think it's kind of personified in the way Beatles fans are so... Uh, dismissive of other boy bands. It's interesting. Like, like the baby boomers are very... I think that there's a lot of interesting ageism and sexism, particularly with Beatles yeah. mania. Because yeah. really, and we'll come back to this whole idea of teenage girls' likes being dismissed culturally, but yeah. teenage girls made the Beatles. Totally. And now they are considered to be the greatest pop band of yes. all time. And they and wouldn't I mean, have- um, we're in a city right now, Adelaide, which has such a proud history of Beatles fandom yeah, too, which yeah. is amazing actually. Yeah, so there's a lot of contradictions around age yes. and gender, I think, that come out when we're talking about this kind of music. Yes. Um, and I guess it kind of takes its focus from, I, well, like it really starts with Listomania, right? So yeah. the composer, Franz Liszt, and I, if anyone doesn't know what Listomania is, it's really kind of fascinating because it was seen to be this contagious hysterical disease yeah. where, you know, Franz Liszt just mesmerized these young girls. Uh, he, it sounds like he had hair a bit like Harry Styles because he had yeah. a little bit of a like a tuft or something, and so women just he would throw his hair around and people just and they fangirled. Co- they collected it and they like <laughs> kept coffee dregs and his cigar stubs and stuff yeah. and and carried them. Apparently, like you could smell wow. these girls because you could smell the like 
coffee dregs that they carried around with him. But I guess that if you look on eBay, you right. would probably find very similar phenomenon with, you know, oh, hey, yeah. here's a hotel that Harry stayed in and yeah. this is the teacup that he drank from. I bet. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, like all the girls, our girls have all kept memory boxes of, you know, Alif's got a receipt from for a sandwich she bought the day she met Harry. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that and it's so fun. I think I do relate to that um, yeah. because I'm pretty sure I kept I've, – I've still got all of my – maybe not sandwich receipts, but I definitely <laughs> have all of my stubs, yeah. um, tiny little smash yeah. hits, cutouts and everything in a shoebox. Gorgeous. Somewhere. Really lovely. <laughs> but you were just talking about Alif, yeah. um, who is obsessed with One Direction. Yeah. And the film begins with her reaction video on YouTube. So can you tell us a little bit about the process of finding these women? You've got this, you know, this generational thing, mm. but when you when you opened that scope, as you said, how did you then find them? So we found Ali first. Um, Jessica, uh, you know, no one else her own age was in feeling the same way about One Direction. So she turned to the internet, like mm. all of us do, and fell into the One Direction fandom. Um, One Direction fans really made reaction videos a huge thing. Yeah. Online, they put up, they, there's so many amazing ones of girls opening opening their tickets or watching the um, What Makes You Beautiful video clip and crying and screaming. <laughs> but she found Elise first, and Elise, what makes Elise's video so amazing is and it's her it goes for eight minutes and it's her watching a one direction concert dvd and it's a concert she went to yeah and unlike many of the other reaction videos online her the camera was hidden her cousin put it at the top of the tv so she Mm. can't she doesn't know she's being filmed and it's just eight minutes of her raw unfiltered beautiful emotions (laughs) we had a psychologist or a neuroscientist look at the video and she said yeah at at, during that video she's not actually in her her body is almost in fight or flight mode if you asked her her name yeah she could do it but she might like she would have forgotten a lot of things her brain her her teenage brain is just like massively on overload that's i actually wanted to ask you if you came across in your research yeah anything about what actually happens to girls' brains where it, when they're in these states of hysteria. Because I, I remember those states. I have been in those states. Yeah. And it is entering a different world. So I know a little bit about this, but scientists listening to this will probably be aghast at how I'm going <laughs> to describe this, but I'll give it a go. We did do a bit of research and spoke to some there's some really amazing research going on about the adolescent brain. And basically, you pretty much grow a new brain as a teenager. Yeah. You don't, which is why you need to sleep a lot and then eat a lot. It's also why you feel things so intensely. Yeah. Your brain shuts right down and regrows, and it's why you're more susceptible to addiction and all these, yeah, mm. you're becoming a, a new person. And it's why the music that you hear as a teenager tends to stay with you forever. So when you're in your 90s in a nursing home and we come in and I play Backstreet's Back to you, you will suddenly light up and and know the words. I was just having this conversation with my partner in the car last night because, of course, I was doing research. I was going back through a lot of songs and I was like, I will be – I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday, but I can remember – every single lyric on the Backstreet's Back album and I will be able – and when I have dementia at 100 years old in a nursing home, I will still remember yep. every single word to that song. And not even remembering that, but yep. it is something that taps into the emotional part 
that's there as well. And that's, I think, something that I find really fascinating. It's this kind of trigger memory of emotion as well. And so, okay, so I've got a little bit of a a confession. A couple of weeks ago, I was home alone on a Friday night and I had a few wines. Great. And probably about five or six wines in, I ended up on YouTube. Um, (laughs) Like all good people. Yeah. And I was watching the Mbop video clip and, and Mbop was a transformational song for me. Like it was, it, it, gen- I know it sounds really silly, but like it, it, it genuinely means a lot to me that, that song. I was very obsessed with Hanson and I got really, cause I was drunk. I got really, really emotional. And I felt that same kind of sense of longing. And that's, it was like all of those nine and 10 year old yeah. Lauren emotions just burst forward in me and I actually found myself weeping like I was crying as a 31 year old woman on my couch Mm. crying watching Mbop because I became so sad as well that I could never go back to Mm. that time and I could I realized I think that I could never feel that intensity of emotion again yeah and that just made me really sad and there's something in that there's something I think Susan says that listen to this music is really cathartic Mm. there's really something in that I think and maybe that's why we carry it with us yeah and and being able to while you can't feel those feelings again I think we believe anyway that staying in touch with your inner teenager or like learning to find that inner teenager again is a really important Mm. thing teenagers are going through such particularly young girls I think are going through such a transformational time this music helps define them it gives them you feel things for the first time and Mm. you feel them so strongly Mm. watching that music for me it was like it was Backstreet Boys and it was Spice Girls. Yep. Um, and then weirdly a bit of Nirvana. But, you know. <laughs> that gets in there too. You yeah. need something. Yeah. A balance. And that music you carry with you. And I think I think fangirls, what they manage to do is find ways to harness that passion in a really exciting way. Yeah. Which I can see, like even for you, that being a fangirl has helped drive you into a creative field. Or, yeah. You know, like that. Yep. that um I've digressed a little bit, but no, yeah, I, that finding your inner teenager is possible and you can keep doing it and it's good. Yeah. I think it's important, <laughs> especially like as you become older and more cynical and yeah. it's harder to feel that joy. Yeah. Like it genuinely is hard to tap into that. Yeah. And even actually in the film without giving too much away, you know, we follow a leaf for four or five years mm. um, and by the end she's, you know, finished high school and she's reflecting back on the years of the reaction video when she was 15 you know we really see her grow up you know physically Mm, and emotionally mm. and she is already sad about she's kind of become an adult she's a bit more stitched up and and having to face the realities of life and she's already nostalgic for like 15 year old Alif which is really sad I I found that really interesting I think I've I've actually written a note about that because I think Alif's journey is so interesting because we see yeah her transformation, whereas the other women are speaking more retrospectively, yeah, definitely. we actually see her th- go through this process where she ends up in a little bit of a nostalgic, yeah, not, not indifference, but like, yeah, she comes out the other side. But yeah. you can also see how the fandom has affected her life and it's affected the choices that she's made yeah. and the person that she's become, yeah. you know, to what she wants to study yeah. and her relationships um, and all kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's She grows up. It, it was really interesting to contrast her journey. It was a challenge, actually, edit, to edit it in a way because her journey is so current mm. within the film, mm. whereas the other girls are 
you know, they're still figuring out their boy band-itis, as Dara calls it, but it is a bit more retrospective, yeah. you know, um, and they're, they're past the intensity. They're, they're so grown-ups. Because you, you did film the film over um, a number of years. Yes. So what was that process like? That became about originally because we kept running out of money. Okay. <laughs> because no one thought... <laughs> Of course, like no one thought a film about boy band fans was important. This was another thing that I wanted to ask. As two women who yeah. are kind of, you know, at the leading this project. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I'm talking, doing a little bit of a tangent into this question. We'll come back to my yeah. original question. But like, yeah, how, how was that process of making people believe in this film and, and getting it off the ground as well? Like as two women about a, as a subject that is considered to be quite... Well, it's quite dorky. Yeah. Um, and I think we're still even dealing with that now, even in a festival sense, even though it's had an amazing festival run now. Um, so to start off with, Jess and I funded it ourselves, like, for the first year. A little, yep. Like, when I say funded it, you know, Jess went to America, took herself to America to meet Alif and Sadia for the first time. We then registered the project with the Documentary Australia Foundation and approached some private donors. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Deanne Weir came on board. I don't know if you know her, but she's look her up. She's like feminist philanthropist icon. Fantastic. I love her. <laughs> and anyway, she's a former Bay City Rollers fan girl. Oh, of course. That was my mum's <laughs> yeah. poison of choice. Oh, yeah. my God. They're amazing. The photos of the Bay City Rollers fans are really yeah. worth looking at <laughs> with their tartan. Anyway, she, is a f- she got it straight away. Yeah. And she said, I'm on board, which yeah. was amazing. So she helped give us money in that early phase and the other people that supported us early were either like Beatles fans or yeah so it was from the community itself yeah. where the value was seen and it wasn't until we'd been shooting for three or four years we did a kickstarter which raised money from people all over the world including the Backstreet Boys who gave to the kickstarter well, that's amazing and finally right near the end when we needed some proper money to pay ourselves to focus on the completion yeah and pay hire a team for eight months to finish the film Screen Australia and um, the professional fans at Madman came on yep. board to help yep. us, which was amazing. Yeah, that's good. Like, so it was really a, a passion project for you guys. Oh, right. Yeah, for many years. I did like. Yeah, yeah we would. I barely. We Jess and I basically didn't get paid. Yeah, but we loved it, and that the wonderful thing about making a film about boy band fans is it's a joyous, yeah, gorgeous thing, and so it never felt. There was stress and there were tears at various times, but it never got to... I've worked on some very dark films, Mm. but because this subject matter is just fun. Yeah. And how has it been received so far? Because of, I guess, these themes, which I want to talk about the themes in a minute, but, you know. Well, it's it's been a really amazing year. We had our world premiere at Hot Docs in Toronto. We then came and played at Sydney Film Festival... Uh, we came second in the Audience Awards at Sydney and Melbourne Film Festivals. Oh, congratulations. And now we're in Adelaide. I was in Texas two weeks ago at Fantastic Fest. Yep. Which was great. Yeah, it's been received really well. People love it or don't get it at all. Yeah, okay. Um, they, what's, fun, what's great about the film is and magic is hearing people laugh. Um, we mm. didn't know it was funny. Like we knew it was funny, but we didn't realise how funny it was. People really laugh along with the girls, yeah. not at them. I was going to say, it is. I think I assume that it's a with them. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah. Jess's style is really empathetic. You know, she's a fan herself. So the interviews, the, Sadia used to call it her annual therapy session because she, yeah. she and Jess would just sit and talk about her Backstreet Boys obsession for a few hours every year. And, <laughs> and 
so the interviews feel like really confessional and yes I think, you know, yeah, yeah. and the girls are really analysing themselves. So, you know, and boy bands are funny. And and <laughs> analysing themselves, I think, and in really interesting ways in that, I think yeah. they're tapping into a lot of the, the broader cultural anxieties around what mm. what fandom means yeah. um, and particularly what it means to be a boy band fan and maybe also what it means to be a boy band fan when you've aged out of what you're allowed to be yeah. as a boy yeah. band fan. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Sadia, all of the girls have different struggles, but Sadia is one I find. Sadia is really intelligent and the way she walks the line, she's constantly battling between, I I love the Backstreet Boys, I love Nick Carter. Oh my God, loving Nick Carter and the Backstreet Boys is so problematic as a feminist. Um, Why am I loving the whitest boy in America who doesn't look anything like my dad? Let's go on a cruise with the Backstreet Boys. You know, she's... for the audience, she's like, how far is too far in? Yeah. She really does, walks that, which I find really interesting. Yeah. And I think she was fascinating. Yeah. She's so clever and analytical of herself. So there's also a lot about the kinds of communities of fandom that exist. And this is, is this, this is how you found the other three women? Uh, yeah. So Sadia actually we found because she's a writer and I think – you know, she credits the Backstreet Boys with mm. getting her into creative writing, and uh, which is what she does now. She, we found her when we started to broaden out from just one direction because she'd written a really wonderful blog entry about going on the cruise oh, with yeah. the Backstreet Boys, and she just spoke. Again, she just just knew she would be great to speak to because she's so. She talked about being on a dance floor and feeling like the cruise was tacky and she'd yeah. gone too far. And she wanted to leave, and then Nick Carter brushed her hand, like hand brushed hers on the dance floor, and she just was lost. She probably died. Yeah, she just went. <laughs> she just regressed to that inner teenager yeah. back again, and she didn't care anymore. Like yeah. you know, so she just we wrote to her and said, "Can we talk to you?" And she was generous enough to share her story with us. Which once we got going, we got a bit of a roll on though, and people started knowing we were talking to fans. Mm. Early on, we set up our social media accounts because. It's how they congregate online yeah. now. And people started sending us fans that they knew. Yeah. So Dara turned up. Um, she got dobbed in. Quite late in the process, <laughs> actually. But um, she, someone said, oh, you have to meet my friend who's a boy band consultant, self-proclaimed boy band <laughs> consultant in Sydney. What a job. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we met Dara. And the su- originally we spoke to Dara. We were thinking she might help with the marketing. But then as soon as we got off the phone with her, Jess said, I think we need to get her on yeah. camera. And yeah. she's, she's great. The way she talks about, yeah, again, not giving too much away, but the way Take That helped her form her identity is really amazing. It really, really is, yes. And also Dara is the one who has – she breaks down the boy band theory, yeah. right? So she's, she's very conceptual as well. Yeah. About, could you talk a little bit about – for our listeners, yep. her, her boy band theory. Yeah, so we knew that the film needed to kind of define a boy band for people. We also knew that, like we were saying a bit earlier, Beatles fans needed to be – we needed to explain why the Beatles were in there because yep. too many people were getting their knickers in a knot about it, even when we were developing the mm. film. Yeah, like, people don't like to think of the Beatles yeah. as a boy band. They graduated into a man band, but to start off with, yep. they were definitely a boy band. Yeah. Like – they sang cover songs. <laughs> they were matching outfits. Matching outfits with matching hair yeah. in a row, bopping along. So much Come merchandise. On. Like, <laughs> seriously. So Dara put together for us a kind of beautiful mind 
whiteboard yeah, yeah. Of, of boy bands and non-boy bands where she describes what makes up a boy band in her yeah. in her eyes and it's some confident there's some controversial there definitions are, yeah, in there. There are there are some, a few points that I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah. I mean, I think I with think you on that one. exactly like I do think we can go 10 rounds on with it. Hanson are a boy band. Yeah, I feel conflicted about whether or not they're... But in, in, for the sake of fandom, I think that they count. Yeah, they the do. Fandom in, is the fandom the is. Same. Uh, definitely. But they aren't styled the way a boy no, band are. No, And there's something a bit... The characters aren't quite as distinct or something. Yeah. And, the, and again, boys to men and to a lesser extent, E17, there's something a bit sexier about them. Yes. They've got women in bikinis in their film clips, which... Yep. To me, says not boy band. Well, this is actually brings me to my next point because Dara also makes the point that boy bands sing about love themes. Yeah. Um, and that they're not explicitly sexual. The the sexual kinds of the the undertones. Yeah. And if but I don't know, like, and yes, I think those boy bands that you those bands maybe that you've mentioned are more explicitly sexual. And I think actually my first ever album that was mine was a boys to men album, and my favorite song so was I'll Make Love to You, and I had. <laughs> No idea. Of course, I just thought it was a beautiful love song. I had no idea what it was about. But, like, I think if you do look at a few of these boy bands that she, you know, does claim yeah. are boy bands, there is still something quite sexual about uh, them. Definitely. And especially, I think, with, like, Backstreet Boys and Quit Playing Games With My Heart, that yes. video clip that we play and yeah. that Sadia analyzes, you know, they're, it's a wet T-shirt comp, yeah. right? Yeah. And they're, yeah, it's... They're a bit more sexual, I would have said, and I think there's something – we were talking about this the other night. There's something going on with the American or the Florida boy bands that's slightly different to the UK preppy Beatles 1D. That's true, yep. Um, thing. Yep. Um, the other side note, the other brilliant thing about Take That is they were marketed simultaneously at teenage girls and older gay men, which is why you get right. amazing, like, studded leather – kind of boy band <laughs> pin-up shots. It's really funny. Oh, that's fun. And that actually, I was, because I was also watching the Larger Than, Backstreet Boys Larger Than Life video this morning, yes. and there's a lot of, like, halter mesh. Yes. And that kind of, and they, I, I wonder if they, I don't know, started to, or yeah. if they were just influenced by boy bands that yeah. came before them. But that quit playing, the Backstreet Boys quit playing games with my heart video clip was when I was 12 years old a significant moment <laughs> in my individual sexual development. And I, along with a generation of people my age, yes. I'm sure. But the film also makes it, like, kind of touches on the idea that boy bands represent a, a really particular kind of masculinity. Yeah. And also that they're really packaged yes. in certain ways. So what do you think is important about this kind of way that they're curated? I think the reason why boy bands do have a slightly different hysteria to something like Justin Bieber you know, who definitely has kind of huge fangirls, is there's a, there's a character for every yeah. you and your friends or, you know, Lauren today, Lauren tomorrow. Yeah. And that's really nice. There's like a little, as Dara calls it, a little pantheon of gods that are sort of, yeah, a little box set you can collect. Yes. And there's something about that that just when they're up on stage together and is just, um yeah, electric, yeah. I guess. Well, I think Susan says that, and she's talking about the Beatles, she says the way that they looked um, and the way they sounded was not frightening. It's accessible. You could tell they looked safe. Yeah. And then later Sadia says, we're really afraid of female sexuality. Yeah. It's a double standard. The expectations are different because of our gender. And 
I do think that there is something to this. And again, maybe it comes up around this idea of hysteria and listomania and things like that. But it is this time in a young woman's life when they are emerging into their sexuality. But I think that this is a process that's far more socially acceptable in boys. It's kind of assumed that boys are going to ferret away pornography and lock themselves away in their bedrooms. And, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, boys will be boys. But for girls, it's not really talked about Girls, I don't think, know how to talk about it. Girls don't understand maybe what's happening in their bodies the same way that boys do. And so I wonder if these kind of boy bands offer this safe distance. They're unattainable. Like you said, they're like a matching set. You've got your posters on your wall. You know you'll never really have a relationship with them. And so they're kind of an unthreatening and maybe therefore socially acceptable way for girls to express sexuality. I'll just go back one step and just sort of make a comment. Like one thing I would also add is that boy bands tend to be mostly white. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's something like there's some racism going on there in terms of what's safe. Yeah. I mean, there are black boy bands, like look at new edition. They were very preppy and walking around holding ice cream sundaes and stuff. But you know, if you look at boys to men, there's something about the blackness. Yeah. Probably that makes them more man bandy. Yeah, and they're more maybe overtly sexual. Yeah, and, they, yep. they are the, all those things as well. But I think, yeah, I think you probably have to acknowledge race yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Um, and some boy, and part of the boy band styling now is to have an ethnic <laughs> member. And. Um, yeah, which yeah. is like, you know, Zane or Howie, you know, like. To an extent. To maybe. an extent, yeah. yeah. So, yes, just. A digression from that. Yeah. But yeah, for sure, there's something both about sexual awakening going on with boy bands in a really safe mm. way where you, they are at a distance. Like we don't really know or probably want to know what these men are really like. Yeah, um, <laughs> you don't. Um, but if, if you're just watching Harry Styles run around in the water, like it's a pretty gorgeous way to yeah. have a first crush. And in the film, we show in animations what these girls' fantasies were when we really said to Sadia, you know, what is your what is your dream for yeah. you and Nick? And, like, we thought it might be a sexy story, but she just wanted him to teach her how to swim. Yeah, that was gorgeous. It was. And it's just like, who his favourite animal was yeah. dolphins? And <laughs> None of them actually imagined. And I was the same, you know. Um, I grew up on a farm in the country and I remember thinking, oh, you know, maybe one day Backstreet Boys might just come down the driveway. And <laughs> yeah. I would show them the sheep. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's that's really, all I wanted. They're innocent fantasies. <laughs> Definitely. And and I wonder also, oh, I'm just going to dip my toes into maybe something a little bit more kind of, you know, serious. Yeah. I, I wonder particularly in the light of things like Me Too, which is really just lifting the veil on a culture that has always existed, that – these kind of innocent fantasies and the way that young girls yearn for this very kind of like safe sexual expression is maybe because there is very frightening, like real sex is very frightening and real boys are very frightening. And you only really need to look at the data surrounding the numbers of teenage girls who, you know, do experience sexual assault at the hands of their teenage or college aged peers to maybe understand why, yeah, sexuality is this conflicted. Yeah, and why is it, it? You know, in some ways, it's really quite sad that that's what girls find. You know, like the boy bands fulfill something like mm. that, and 
they're a marketing construct in some yeah. ways, you know. Yeah. But I think, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a fun and safe way for girls to start dipping their toe into that stuff. Mm. I mean, I think to go into there was a point like this time last year when we just finished the film when Me Too just blew up. Yeah. And it was an amazing and challenging time to be a fan or to be a survivor of anything, which we all probably are. Mm. Um, and there were several boy band members. Yeah. John Lennon onwards have got disturbing track records. Yeah. Which we sort of wanted to... We'd finished the film, so we couldn't change it, but we wanted to... Ultimately, we wanted the film to um, not glorify boy bands. Yeah. Or the boy band members, you know. Yeah, it's, it's not just, about the boy bands themselves. It's about themselves. the girls, yep. yeah. Yep. But I do think, yeah, it's an important and exciting time, and we sort of hope that maybe the film can contribute to a discussion about how it is hard to be a fan at the moment. Yeah. It's hard to be a survivor. It's hard. It's important that uh, stories come out and are listened to, but it's challenging when Mm -hmm. it was really interesting to see the way the Backstreet Boys fandom have responded to allegations made against Nick Carter. A lot of them, yeah, it's it's hard for them. Yeah, it is. And it, it like I even had that moment this morning when I was thinking about it because yeah. Nick was my poster boy. Yeah. And it is challenging. Jess and I had the conversation because, you know, she's like, she loves Harry Styles very, very much. Yeah. And she doesn't get the Backstreet Boys. So she found it quite easy to go, well, well I don't get it. But I said, but what if it was a story about Harry? And yeah. she immediately got it. She's like, I would be so 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 sad and yeah. I find it very hard to just kind of not defend him yeah <laughs> so we won't spend too much time on that darker stuff because I do want to come back yeah like to the fans themselves because yes. as we said the film's really not about the boys it's yep. about the girls who love them and so Dara says you know everything in high school is so significant right and everything you listen to is significant and so she found that she had to hide her love for Take That because outing herself yep. was such a source of shame. And so I – and I did the same thing. I think I turned about 14 and I just, like, pushed it up. I ripped out – all of the posters came down off of my walls. My T-shirt went into the bottom of my drawer and didn't come out for another 10 years. And there was a real sense of shame about this. Ironically, I went on instead to be a fangirl of like Blink-182 and Good Charlotte, who I think are boy bands of a different kind. Oh my gosh. <laughs> There's the sequel. There it so, is. Yeah. They are like, yeah. Actually, my dad talked about a couple of brilliant girls who wrote like amazing essays about their love for Good Charlotte. <laughs> and ever since then, he's really liked them. So that yeah, that's an interesting site, like alternative girls boy bands that may be slightly more socially acceptable. But anyway, there is this kind of a sense of shame that comes with being a fangirl of boy bands. So I was wondering, like, why do you think we're not allowed to like them? Because they're so they are so constructed and they're so obviously a marketing construct that it feels like I think Dara says it feels like it's you're a bit of a fool if you fall for it. Yeah. And I, I guess that's what Jess even felt too when she fell in love with One Direction. She was like, look at them. They're so cute. It's, I can't believe I'm feeling things. <laughs> yeah. But it's, they've been put in these matching outfits and they're singing and smiling and, you know, look at Niall's braces. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think what we found is that the girls know it. Yeah. The girls know it. They're not stupid. Yeah. They know that it's a construct, but they still... 
love it. Yeah. And they enjoy playing into that and buying into those little narratives and finding their own narratives. Like, I mean, if you fall into the fan fiction category and the Larry Stylinson stuff, it's all really amazing. And, yeah, there's Beatles fan fiction, which is really erotic and oh wow yeah the john and paul stuff (laughs) (laughs) you have to look at that yeah um so yes i think there's the shame about boy bands because it's people can see it's a construct but ultimately yeah yeah well this is interesting i think that you talk about this becoming a part of like a way of expressing identity so one of my very good friends is a a critic who wrote an essay about fangirling and i want to quote from her so she her name is emma mcguire and she argues that like fangirling is a way of modifying texts and using them to express your identity um and she says and this is a quote, this isn't the passive consumption of the couch potato or the chilly critique of a detached onlooker. It is active and participatory. Fangirling is a switched on and engaged way of interacting with cultural media, not blind hysteria, but rather a form of self-representation and creative expression that involves a certain kind of creativity, originality and release. I mean, you have to send me that Send me her piece. That sounds yeah. amazing. It's in uh, Kill Your Darlings if anyone uh, wants to read oh, it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I would love to. She sounds great. Brodie Lancaster wrote a really wonderful Saturday paper piece. Yep. And she's a, you know, she's a professional fangirl. I don't know. Do you, are you familiar with Jessica Hopper? Are you, she's a US music critic. No. Rock critic. She wrote a wonderful book about being a female critic and her pinned tweet is, next time you're about to use the word fangirl, replace it with the word expert. Ah, yes. Good. And it went viral and it kind of taps into this exactly what you're saying. Like fangirls are channeling and creating their own wonderful, yeah. amazing, rich narratives that are far more intelligent than the marketing, basic marketing that Sony mm. puts together. Mm. And ultimately we're a bit sad that we all four of the girls in our film have amazing stories, but there are like another Four million stories yeah. out there. That we but that's re- what's so great about run. the film because I think it taps it when you're watching it, it taps into your version of that story. Oh, good. And that's what's so like it was cathartic watching yeah. because it's like, and I was not, and like my, my partner was kind of teasing me. He's like, you just keep nodding. Like, <laughs> you keep nodding at this. And I was like, yeah, it's because it's really, it's that real. It's my heart. That's yeah. so good to hear. <laughs> but it's also, I think it does demonstrate that because. The things that young girls love have meaning kind of precisely because they give meaning to the people who love them. And beautiful, you know, so that there is something culturally significant about boy bands because they mean something to their fans. Yeah. And they, I mean, there's massive cultural significance with boy bands. They tend to become the iconic music of their generation. And why? Because teenage girls love them. Again, Someone will prove me wrong on this, but apparently they've done studies into language and cultural shifts and most trends somehow, despite them being quite repressed in many ways and marginalised, shifts in language and shifts and, and developments in culture tend to start with young women. Yes, I've heard this. Pretty amazing that they've managed to do that in the patriarchy. They've managed to screw the patriarchy somehow. Yeah. yeah. While still getting screwed by it. And yet it is. It's so they're so <laughs> denigrated and dismissed. Yeah. But they're actually quietly changing everyone. Changing the world. the world. And I mean, I think that in a way, maybe this is a new theory I'm just making up now. Yeah. But like if you look back at, 
you know, what Harvey Gavinson did with yes. for fangirling yep. and f- with Rookie and Young Women and now Teen Vogue and all of that. Some of those young women outlets are just, they started a lot of this amazing feminist chatter that's going on right yep. now. Absolutely. Yay, teenage girls. Yeah, because it's also <laughs> like they are changing the world and it also taps into a coming of age. It's like these young girls who are changing culture as they become young women and then they carry that through with them yeah you know yeah so i guess the the film also kind of illuminates this process of coming of age and how because so many coming of age stories are not about young women yeah and they're not about the way that culture informs coming of age as well yeah and i guess it's a kind of a reciprocal process as well like we were just talking about these young girls are informing culture yes and they're informed by culture and then they're growing into women who continue to inform culture so how much do you think the film kind of understands or maybe is is that something that you were trying to play with not overtly actually that that's something that's kind of i think it probably comes out a bit because it's multi-generational yeah so you're looking at the way you know the beatles fandom and to an extent, I guess, Listomania, you know, provided the template that allows fangirls now to be. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we definitely wanted to sort of look at. I mean, if you look at the way the One Direction fandom, and because there's most recent and the ones we started with, I kind of know them a bit better. The way that they've shifted the way social media works and mm-hmm. social media languages, they basically brand Humbler, you know. Yeah. That's really, yeah, they've informed a lot. I yeah. think. I don't know if I answered that. But no, but yeah. I think even look, thinking about things like the way that influencers work now, yeah. that's all driven by yeah. young girls who are, you know, kind of driving that culture, which is being reflected back at them yeah. and then is, you know, keep, keeps pushing that forward. Yeah. You know, there, it's a huge market. Like even if you are, again, that this is one of the reasons it's probably denigrated is because of this whole big yep. commercial aspect yep. to it. But at the same time, is that a bad thing? Yeah. Like necessarily? Yeah. Really? I don't think so. Yeah. And I think they know they're being sold something. Yeah. And I think they get that mostly. You know, of course there are extremes that don't, but mostly people understand and love participating in yeah. whatever narrative they've created. Yeah. Because it's a boy band. So I guess ultimately though, I think the film is a celebration of fandom. And as Susan says, it's about this time in your life when you really need to scream and cry and there's this release of energy um and i really love she says in western society we're so bloody stitched up but your body tells you what it wants to do and i really love that so why do you love fangirls and why should we love fangirls yeah well firstly i'll just say that um, i believe fangirls can be any gender yes um yes fangirls they just tend to exhibit traits that we would typically assign to a woman and in a, in a negative way. Agreed, um, yep. And so we believe that a fangirl can be any shape or size or person and that losing, yeah, crying and screaming and writing fan fiction is a healthy and wonderful thing to do and letting go, Yeah. Uh, letting go in the way that a teenager does in the way you did when you watched Mbop, yeah. um, is like a really fun thing, important thing to yeah. do in this crazy, crazy world that we're living in. Yeah. And we hope that that film will encourage people to get in touch with their inner, fang- inner mm. fangirl or start to respect the teenagers in their life a bit and, yes. and kind of, you know, 
allow them to enjoy that moment. Yep. We're excited. We've just finished the study guide for the film. So boy bands are going to be taught in high schools that's, at last. That's yeah. excellent. Oh, my God. That would have made. So if any teachers out there who would like a copy of the study guide, Jess and I will come and talk boy bands with the students. That is the best news that I've heard in a long yeah. time. I really like and that. And so we can start talking about popular culture and high art and, you know, all of that yes. stuff. Um, yeah. It's time wonderful. to embrace. It's time to embrace teenagers and it's time to embrace um, pop culture definitely well that I mean that's sort of it I just I really encourage anyone to who's able to go out and see the film to watch it like for me it just the most amazing thing I think is that it felt like a validation you know thank you and that's it is empowering yeah and it is important so like thank you firstly you know for and led by two women as well so is there a way that people who aren't around for the film festivals it's been at various film festivals it's going to continue with film festivals is it we have our um we're premiering in the home of boy bands london next friday night throwing (gasps) a boy band party for us but yeah mad men are releasing it um around australia in limited cinemas from the 22nd of november probably for a week or so excellent so we would really encourage everyone to go along and you can find us on all the social medias yeah and we'd love to hear we love to hear fangirl stories after screenings we just get so many wonderful <laughs> stories and like photos from you know the 90s that are amazing and like, yeah yeah we love hearing and meeting fangirls and we love talking to yeah passionate smart women excellent (laughs) well we'll do watch out for it in cinemas in november near you and yeah i hope that you enjoy the film as much as i did and thank you so much for chatting to us thank you i'm so upset that i missed out on getting to meet Rita. She sounds like such a fascinating woman. I had the best time. I'm very jealous. It was so much fun. It was really a wonderful interview. And I encourage everyone to go and see this film. Like we said, it's coming to cinemas as of November 22nd. But if you happen to be in Adelaide, we are going to be at the the screening, which is tomorrow night, Friday the 19th of October. We're going to be there. And you know what? We're going to do a karaoke party afterwards. There's a karaoke party afterwards. exciting lauren and alicia will be there if you're in london it's also premiering in london this weekend so get along there and watch out for it in cinemas near you and of course as always if you would like to catch up on all of our deviant women episodes you can find us on itunes stitcher your podcasting app of choice please leave us a review we really love them And if you really want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon. We have a bunch of really exciting behind-the-scenes content, extra interviews. We have animations and we have blooper reels, mini episodes. You name it, you can find it. Well, not you name it. I mean, there's some things we don't have. You couldn't <laughs> like we don't have lasagna on okay. there. You <laughs> couldn't say lasagna, but and we're it's on Patreon. On, we're working on if getting requests. Lasagna as part of the Patreon. Like we can try to make that happen. Can, we can give it our best yeah. shot. But you can also buy merchandise on our Etsy store, and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Deviant Women. As always, a very, very big thank you to India Hui for the music and to Brendan Davies for the sound. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye.